Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today, I welcome as my guest to The Business of You podcast, Tissa Richards. While Tissa is currently an executive coach, she has spent decades as a technology founder and CEO who is on a mission to create a legion of leaders with an unshakable sense of self. And boy, does Tissa have an unshakable sense of self. I'm sure you're going to feel it in this interview. Tissa has founded, invested in, and run software companies in Silicon Valley, and she also holds over a dozen software patents. She has won awards for many of her software products, and she's also one of very few successful women who's raised a lot of venture capital money from Silicon Valley. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You as you tune in to Tissa Richards and hear her backstory. Tissa, welcome to The Business of You. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks so much. It's so great to be here with you, Rachel. Great to see you live from Austin, Texas. Um, Tissa, we were chatting a little bit before the show, and you've got such a fascinating background. I'd love for you to share a bit of your journey of how you started this business um, and some of the the ups and downs along the way to kind of finding your your real passion in the work that you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I like to say I'm a recovering tech founder, <laughs> and I, I don't I don't say that to make light of of addiction. But I say that because I sometimes worry I'm going to wake up and go, oh, God, I started another software company last night. Um, But, you know, I have founded and invested in and run um, software companies and, you know, been a CEO and raised money. And after my last one, I just realized I was not thriving in that environment. We sort of over glamorized entrepreneurship and, um, you know, that that world. And it's actually a really grueling, exhausting place. And when I realized I wasn't thriving, it's really hard for your company to thrive when you aren't. And so I thought, what's my mission really? And I thought long and hard about it and realized, I think I really wanted to do something where I was helping leaders create this unshakable sense of self and the quantitative and qualitative benefits that come along with that for their teams and their companies. And so now I run a company without investors, which is a lot more freeing, um, where we where we do that. And it's, it's so it's a leadership company and we do a lot of training and speaking and workshops and coaching. And it's um, every day is absolutely delightful. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it's rare that there is um, a female tech founder, um, quite honestly, right? Like I think most companies are founded by men, especially software can you, so what was your path to starting your first company? Like, what did you study in college and 
How did you decide to start the company you you started your first one? Yeah, I mean, I think my path was um, a little bit maybe non-traditional. And you're right, there's not a lot. And so frequently, I was the only woman in the room and frequently the, the youngest person as well, regardless of gender. Um, I, I really got involved. I studied communications in school and decided I was going to go into PR or marketing. Um, but I, I got involved because I invested in a company really early on. I was sort of an angel investor, the first money in, and it was cool. It was fun. We were commercializing this really raw technology and I kind of caught this startup bug. And, um, my most recent company I started cause I was well, I, you can probably tell I'm a redhead and I was drinking in a bar in Dublin, Ireland, and uh, an executive from a, a very large telecom company said to me, we have this problem. No one can solve it. He listed all these huge, huge global tech companies. And um, I said, oh, well, that's stupid. I think we can do it. I don't know who we was. I didn't have a company at the time, <laughs> um, but I, I said to him, if I can solve it, can we come back and just you know, do it. And we shook on it. And three months later, we had kind of, I put together this great brain trust, created a company and came back and did it. So um, I think there's a lot of paths, including maybe a drunken dare. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so what had given you the background to do that? I think it had been living and working in Silicon Valley for at that point, you know, okay. 20 years and sort of being around that, yeah. that really courageous, like we can solve anything with the right brain power and, um, and chutzpah maybe. Yeah. So you had a good network and you were, um, really just savvy and resourceful. It sounds like. Yeah. I'm not sure about the savvy, but resourceful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what, what was that first company then that you started? Yeah, so the, the first company that we productized and um, sort of took to market and, and capitalized was um, this massively parallel database processing. So it was it was really technical. Okay. And, but it was great. We had an exit. It was fun. And then the, the most recent one was a cybersecurity um, seven-millisecond mm. anomaly detection company. We have a lot of patents around that. So it kind of became this accidental technologist, um, wrote all the patents and actually created the architecture for the product. So wow. It's also a message that even if you go to school, you know, not technical, do marketing, if something's interesting and you sort of get steeped in in a different industry or a different functional domain, you can you can end up starting a company and, you know, writing patents and and raising money and sort of becoming a, a subject matter expert. I, I don't cut code, but I definitely yeah. became tech, technolo technologically savvy enough to do it. Right, right. That's yeah. so fascinating. And I think you're so right. Sometimes what we study in college really limits us instead of becoming just a good like diving board for whatever that next thing is. So um, it sounds like in multiple, many of your companies, you were also, you took outside investors. Was that in all your companies or in just these? Okay. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what it felt like um, raising funds? raising venture capital? Yeah, it's not fun. Um, it's it's really grueling, but I think it teaches you how to be really specific about the story, the value, you know. Um, I actually think it's a really good lesson for what I do now, which is helping leaders and executives and companies talk about themselves in a really succinct way. But I also think there's a like an adjacent piece there, which is, 
understanding the values, like not all money is created equal. So if two people are willing to write you a million dollar check or two companies, um, that's not $2 million that are equal. So who are those people? What are their values? What is it going to be like to have a relationship with them? Um, and that really impacts the culture of your company, the values that you are willing to, or that you are able to express as a founder or a leader, a CEO. And that's not something that you necessarily know right away as a, a baby CEO, right? Um, but it's something I'm really passionate about helping founders figure out. You're so you're so desperate to raise capital that sometimes you're afraid to ask those questions like, hey, how do you handle conflict? How do you have hard conversations? Um, what would you do in this situation? You just want that check so that yeah. the company can survive. But yeah, raising money is, is not fun. Mm-hmm. That's you bring up an interesting point because I think when we're in the role of raising money, we don't feel like we're empowered to interview the the person who's going to invest in us. But what you're saying is like interview them just as much as they're interviewing you. So along along that line, do you have any other tips for um, other founders that might be listening and in, in raising money? Absolutely, I would raise money in such a different way today. You know, as an example. Um, a lot of investors will take will take meetings and it's not because they have any interest in in investing in you. And this is not a knock on an on an investor, but, you know, they have very strict operating agreements with their investors. Right. Remember, they're representing a big pool of their partners who have put money into the fund and they may have even a quota of number of companies they have to look at but they can't invest unless you have a certain revenue or you're at a certain stage or, you know, things like that. Um, they may be looking because they want to see who are the competitors for their existing portfolio companies. Um, I just, there were so many things I didn't know. I would go in and I would, I would ask questions right away. Are you ready to write a check today? Do you have money to write follow on checks? Um, there was even things like when we were pre-revenue, so very, it's hard to raise money at early stage. I thought revenue was binary. You either have it or you don't. And so we did start to learn to find those investors that said that they invested in pre-revenue. And then there were some investors who said, well, for us, pre-revenue means you have one to $2 million in contracts that are signed and ready, but they can't be fulfilled until you have funding. So it wasn't as binary as I thought it was. So it's really qualifying but it's that balance of power at the table because you're just so grateful that somebody's listening to your pitch and things like that. Um, I would just ask a lot more questions. I really didn't ask any questions. I went in and started verbal diarrheaing all over to try and sell ourselves. And at the end, they would just say, well, thanks, you're too risky. You don't fit our thesis. And I thought, well, we all just wasted so much of each other's time. And time is such a precious asset as a founder and as a CEO. Yeah, totally. So what was the decision from what was your thinking process like and what was going on in your life to go from a cybersecurity company, your last venture, to the venture that you started, which is um, providing, you know, really your personal brand, right? Like you're a speaker, you put workshops on, you do some executive coaching, you've recently come out with an amazing book that's doing really well. So you went from being surrounded by a team and a, and a leader, right, of a multi-person company to just, not just, but like to being more of a solopreneur. So what what has that been like for you that, again, like 
how did you make that decision, which I'm sure was a difficult one? And and also now, how does it feel to be basically like running yourself and not managing so many people? Yeah, it, there are times I miss touching technology, uh, which I kind of get that fix by working with a lot of technology companies and founders. Um, I don't miss having investors um, or, or a board, um, but I kind of get that fixed by being a board director, being on companies' boards and helping sort of advise them strategically. Um, but I think that it was sort of taking what I had learned and it, about leadership, about scaling companies and teams and thinking, I, I want to take some of those good lessons and the bad ones and helping helping other people Um but also just, I, I do think we glamorize entrepreneurship a little bit and it's not, it's grueling, it's tiring. And I realized I was no longer thriving. I, I think I told you briefly, you know, when we talked the first time, you know, I was kind of traveling all over the world in airports and hotels, and I was just leaking exhaustion in the form of tears. And I didn't even know I was doing it. I was just that worn out. And um, people would come running up and ask, what what's wrong and I would be looking all around trying to figure out what they were talking about and they were actually talking about me um and I thought you know what this is a good sign not thriving not loving it and if you're not thriving your company won't thrive and now every day I I work just as many hours um travel just as much but I think the mission now is just so fulfilling and um gosh you know like just this year we've put dozens and dozens of people onto corporate boards and doubled compensation for so many people and helped so many companies like reduce friction in their teams. And you see these really measurable impacts and it's so fulfilling. So every day I wake up and look at my calendar and I'm so excited. And I think that's when you know you're really thriving. Yeah, totally. How did you decide to go into the work that you're doing now? Like, did you take some time off between selling your last company and starting this? It was actually just a totally serendipitous. It was almost kind of by accident, which is not always the best thing because then you're not necessarily set it up in the right way. And so there were some some speed bumps about how to scale it and things like that. But um, no, I was kind of in the fetal position under my desk, really exhausted and started to get calls from people. Hey, we heard you're not running that tech company right now. Will you come and speak? Will you come and do a workshop? Um, and so it just organically happened. And I think as it happened and as we started to have amazing results, I thought, I think there might be something here. Maybe it's time to formalize it and and grow it in a really big way. That's awesome. So you decided to put up a shingle yeah. as, as the coach. Did you have to t- um, take any sort of certification programs or anything like that between? Okay. No, I mean, I think I could have, and I know there are coaches yeah. that do, but I, you know, if somebody has ever said to me, oh gosh, you don't have a coaching certification. Yeah. I don't want to work with you. I kind of think, okay, no worries. Like my, what I bring as a leadership expert or facilitator is a lot of time in the trenches. So yeah. I think that brings a lot of credibility because I work with mostly C-suite um, clients. And so having been there, done that brings a lot of that on the ground experience. Oh yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree. Nothing like real life experience, right? Yeah. There's that empathy, you know, you've been in someone's shoes. So that really like confidential sounding board of, I literally know what you're, what going, you're going through. through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what made you decide to write a book? I had never thought about it. Well, no, that's really? not true. I had, I had wanted to since I was a kid. I just didn't know what it would be. But every time I spoke, 
um, every time I did a keynote, um, the organizers would say, if you have a book, we'll, we'd love to distribute it. And I thought, okay, I think that's the universe saying it's time to write a book. <laughs> so um, that was kind of what drove it. What was the process like for you? Did you work with the book writing coach or were you able, to, were you disciplined enough to just kind of take pen to paper and create structure? And Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's, it's a really interesting story. I wrote the book in three months and it was really fast. It just kind of came out and, and I realized it was all the things I'd been saying over and over every time yeah. I did a talk or did a workshop. And then I put it on hold and worked with a really remarkable group of women um, who came through a couple of my workshops and we just made it so much better. And so the, the, the end product, um, it's called no permission needed, unlocking your leadership potential and eliminate self-doubt. And the end product was just really refined by the people that I actually work with. And so mm. I wrote the first draft in, in three months and then took about nine months to just make it, I think really what a lot of people said, this is what we'd really like to see. Mm, that's great. And yeah. who would you say is an ideal target for the book? Is it more for females versus men or anybody in the tech I, industry? I yeah. thought I was writing it for women. Um, and then really interestingly, I've had a lot of men reach out and say, I read it. It really resonated. So I was surprised because, you know, you want to go narrow, right? You want to write to a specific audience. But I think the the premise of the book is really, who are you, right? What do you bring to the table how do you do that in a very unapologetic and specific way, um, both about the value you bring in your work and the values that you operate by as a leader? So I think at a very senior level, but also people who are kind of just starting to navigate their career and starting that that rise in their career. So rising stars or high potential people. Um, so it's actually really resonated. The first time I ever got a picture of my book in the wild um, you know, someone on a plane and then somebody on their porch and next to a cup of coffee. It was just, it was a really magical thing. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Did did you go up to the people that were reading it or no? Were you just like, well, oh, this so feels these were so people good. sending it to, I haven't oh, okay. seen it. Like that's going to be really cool when that happens. But it was just people sending it to me saying like, I'm reading, it's a Sunday, I'm on my porch, I'm reading it, or I'm on a flight to India and, you know, I'm settled into it. And it was just, I had goosebumps. It was very cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's like your soul work, right? When you know you're putting your your personal philosophies out there and they're impacting other people. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very meaningful. That's great. Um, what do you plan to do to, to grow your business now that you have a book out there? I think it's such a great way to build a personal brand and really um, build it much more quickly once you have a book out there. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's hard to scale as, as a coach, for example. So I really only work now with just a small group of, of executives each quarter. And I've really started to do a lot more uh, workshops and online courses and then the speaking, which is so great. So I do a lot just in the past quarter, I've spoken at Gartner. Uh, I'm sorry. I've spoken at Forbes and New York Stock Exchange and do a lot of corporate events. So sales kickoffs and company all hands and um, you know, International Women's Month is in March and that's totally booked out. So I think that's a way to sort of really amplify the message out to a, a bigger and bigger group. And I, I love to do that. So companies will reach out or people will hear me speak and say, I think you'd really, I think this message would really impact my company or my, my group, my association. Um, 
So that's that's what I'd really like to grow. I've also started to host um, leadership retreats. So we did our first one last year and um, would like to do, well, we plan to do either one or two more this year. So that was a really fun way of taking all the things from the book and all the sort of the messages that that I really focus on and actually do that in a much, much more intimate in-person setting. Yeah, yeah, in small group. Yeah. What do you find um, with with both your retreat work and your workshop work that that people lead, leaders in particular? Um, what are some of their primary challenges today? I think. Um, well, I mean, I think that a really big one, right, is as people are coming back. I hate to say back to work as if we haven't all worked for the past three years, but you have a lot of people who haven't met, or there's been so much. Let's say companies have continued to do business. They've acquired companies. They've they've built their teams. They there's whole exec teams where some people have been there for five, six, ten years. Some people have been there for six months, and so we're kind of like reacquainting ourselves with how do you all work together? Who are you? How do you how do you lead? How do you like to be talked to or communicated with? And so it's almost like I've never seen so much friction in companies and teams and people. And, and that's really tiring, right? It really wears on your resilience and then how productive and happy you are. So just helping people navigate that and figure that out. And you can do that in such a pragmatic way. It doesn't take a lot to just get to know people, how they lead, who they are, what their role is and, and help them get over that so that now we can get right back to work. Um, so that's really the, the first one. And then I also think just helping people know how to communicate in a really clear way. I don't know if we're good communicators as people. I totally agree. I'm so curious to see how this younger generation does in leadership roles, you know, once they, they get to those ages and stages of their life, because their communication is even more stunted, just, you know, growing up the way they're growing up, phones and much of the communication being there. Yeah. So I love that you keep coming back to this question, you know, both in your book and you've mentioned it a couple of times, which is who are you? How, who are you? Tissa, like at your core, if someone said to you, which I personally think is a personal brand, right? Like the essence of who we really are, who are you? You know, because I, I find in most situations, like we answer that question by saying what we do. We don't answer who we are. And I think the who we are is such a rich question. So I'm glad you're asking it. I, I actually also really like that you you said that we tend to answer it with what we do, because so much of the time when I when I help people, um, I also say that one of the things that I'm going to come back to your question, but I, um, I always say we, we do talk a lot about what we do, how we do it, and not a lot about why it matters. And I think front loading with why it matters or your so what why you, and then you can talk about, you know, what, what you do to activate why you matter, um, is a really great way to stand out, get hired, have that executive presence, um, things like that. That's how you really accelerate your career. So it's really interesting. Cause I think you just sort of shifted that also into that personal brand or being memorable. Yeah. Um, who am I? I'm, I'm just, I'm a very, um, what you see is what you get very authentic, very no bullshit, pragmatic, and very caring um, person. So 
I really care, really love what I do. I love people. I love when I sit next to someone on a plane, I usually end up hearing very deep personal stories about them um, because I really love to hear about them. Um, when I speak or do a workshop, it's not just to inspire people. It's to be really pragmatic and actionable. Um, there's no, there's no artifice. There's no different levels. It's, you know, I wear cowboy boots to every meeting because they're comfortable. <laughs> you know, I don't wear heels where I, yeah. And I, I would fall over in heels, you know, it's just, um, there's, it, this is me. And I think there's just that lot, like a, a, an authenticity and just like that deep caring. Cause I'm not, I don't just do this because it's, Hey, this is a great space with a lot of, a lot of space in it. This is a space that really means a lot. So, um, yeah, it's very much what you see is what you get. I love that. Do you find that most of the clients you attract have similar traits to you? You asked really interesting questions. Um, no, but I, not necessarily, but I do think, especially, I don't know about your business, but I, it's all minus a hundred percent referrals, right? I don't do any marketing. And so I think good people know good people. Um, I have a no assholes rule, which is a really nice. Thing. Um, so even if they're not like me from a personality perspective, I think that they have good values. So I, and that's something pretty, you can, I think, suss out pretty quickly. And if somebody is just not values oriented and, and isn't principled, uh, I'm not interested in working with them because I don't know why, right? There's, there's a lot of other people on a wait list that you can quickly go to and say, this person would be a lot easier and more enjoyable to work with. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I feel like the work we, you know, we do the work that you do, we're helping people um, spread their message and, and grow. Um, and the work that we do with the, we, you and I collectively do with them creates a domino effect with all the people they interact with. So I feel strongly about like, you want to put good out into the world, right? Like you don't want to arm somebody um, with, with the skills that you, you can project into them and help them grow and strengthen to be doing more crappy stuff out there. Right. So you want to be very careful about who you, you work with. Totally, And it's kind of interesting, right? Like I, I'll have people come to me and say, okay, I love the work I do, but it's a really toxic culture or something. I'm going to try to change it. And I always say to somebody like, you don't have to feel compelled to turn a battleship around. It's really hard for one thing. It'll take years if, if at all possible. And it's going to take such a toll on you. What if we just think about leaving and going someplace? I mean, it's good to try and be a culture carrier or whatever, but at some point you have to think, is it even possible? Like let's put ourselves first. And then also, and I'm sure you've heard about this when you're working with people and their brand. Okay. What is your, what are your values? Oh, and this is such a common thing. Oh, I lead with compassion. I lead with whatever empathy. I like to go one level down and say, tell me why that's a great, um, aspirational statement, but if we can't get to the heart of why that's important and how it creates results and why that is a value, then it's kind of empty. And if somebody can also then say, okay, I, for example, I lead with transparency because I want to know what's possible or whatever it is. And I think doing that means that a whole team has that um, like psychological safety. It enables experimentation, whatever it is. But if you can then articulate it, that's where I think you give people that space and freedom to sort of actually know what is their brand? What is their values? 
and how does it make their organization better, then they can talk about themselves with a lot more confidence and I think specificity. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. I feel like we're in an age where um, there is a lot of a lot of leaders are, are quite corrupt or maybe motivated or driven um, by the wrong things. A, you know, are you finding that? And B, if if your answer is yes, how do you think we can help leaders toe um, a more honorable line, let's say, more integrity? Do you have some examples of just things that you've seen? I feel like in the news, you know, the last couple of years, we're hearing about a lot of private sector companies, uh, whether they're public or not, like being more driven by politics, um, you know, donating to major campaigns. And this synergy between public private is so unique these last couple of years. Um, I guess that's where where my mind was going when I asked that question. Um, and I feel at times... Um, some decisions might not be in the best interest of the company, but might be driven more by impacting an agenda. I do think, and I mean, I think maybe some of that is ameliorated by companies that have a focus on things like ESG or um, or DEI, but not if it's just to check a box, right? Yeah. That's why I think it's also really important that you know your non-negotiables. And this can go to like, you're talking, I think, at a society level, I think even going to this level of what, how do you work the best? How do you thrive? And and I'll give you an example. And this may sound like it's not super related, but you know, I don't, I don't do well when people are yelling I, in my personal life and my work life. And for me, it's a non-negotiable and, and, but I'll say it, but not just in a bitchy way or like, ah, oh, but I'll actually contextualize it. Hey, you get the best work out of me when I'm in a calm environment where everybody can contribute and thrive. And I know there are some people who love to get really, I don't know, maybe worked up because that's how they, that's fine, but that's not how I do great. And so I think it's just saying, I mean, as a CEO, I would say that to my investors. I would say to my, I've taken deals off the table if I felt like it wasn't going to be a good values match in that sense. Um, Obviously as a CEO, you have to be a fiduciary. You have to make sure that ethically things are, um, you're not doing anything unethical, but I think if you don't know your non-negotiables, if you don't know your values, um, Roberta Lang is it, she's here in Austin. She was the former GC of Whole Foods. And she said this, and I, I don't, I want to credit her because I think it's so great. She said, if you don't know your non-negotiables when you need them, it's like trying to get off the freeway at 90 miles an hour, you're going to hit the side, you're going to crash. So taking the time to do it before you need them is really important. And actually, there's it's a whole section in the book because how are you going to say to somebody, this situation doesn't feel right? Why? I don't know. Like your spidey senses are important, but being able to, especially as you get more senior in your career, being able to say, because I feel that X, Y, Z, and you're not defending it, but you're, you have a context to wrap it in and say, because one of my principles or values is X, and now it feels like it's being challenged. It's very past, like I call it past the butter, like at the Thanksgiving table. Hey, can you pass the butter? You're saying, right? Like, I'd like to meet next Tuesday at two. It's so non-conflict, right? Because this is one of my values. It's really important. And I feel like it's being challenged. So, right? Takes a lot of practice. 
but if you don't know it, you can't, you can't point to it. Yeah. No, I think that's amazing advice. Know your non-negotiables. Yeah. Um, and given that's a chapter in the book, um, that's a great kind of full cir- circle way to come back to like, where can people buy your book? Where's the best place to learn more about you? And yeah, so the book is on Amazon and Audible, which was really fun to record, by the way. <laughs> um, felt kind of like weird to be in a studio recording it. Um, yeah, so Amazon and Audible, the website is eponymous. So it's tessarichards.com. Um, and there's like the courses and so there's leadership courses. And if you're interested in getting onto a corporate board, that's one of the most popular courses that we do. Um, yeah, lots of information out there. That's great. What, what, um, will you be focusing on in 2023? Yeah, mostly the courses and doing a lot of corporate workshops. So some of the most popular are things like, um, how to tell your story. Um, how to move, so like sales teams, how to move from really transactional selling to relational selling. Um, some of the the most, I think the things that people come to me a lot are, is how do I increase my executive presence and um, really tell my story in a compelling and short way? Um, and then a lot of speaking. So sales kickoffs, company all hands, conference keynotes. So if, if you're looking for a speaker, that's the easy way to go and reach me through my website. Awesome. We'll put all those links in the show notes. I have no doubt you'd be a very motivating and um, inspiring speaker. So, so best of luck in 2023, landing some amazing new workshops too. Thank you, Rachel. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for having me as a guest. I am so, I'm so excited. And I just feel like that synergy of like the personal branding and the brand work that you do, just, it's just like, it's so interesting how there's so many parallels, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the telling the story piece, the executive presence, right? So it's, it's all very aligned. They're all like pieces of the puzzle of of growing your your brand. Yeah, and, and creating that value just for like as a person, but as, a, as an organization. So I really appreciate um, you having me on today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, Please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.